Dear friends, as I said already, we hope to come to Bethlehem this morning. We hope to come to Bethlehem and to learn what God would have us to learn uh, in this tiny uh, backwater of a city, this, this little village, if it could even be called that, this insignificant place. And yet it speaks to us many, many years later. We hear a message coming to us from Bethlehem. And it's the prophet Micah who brings us this message. Now, as I begin this morning, uh, I'd like us to be clear on what a prophet is. Micah was a prophet, along with many of the other prophets in the Bible. And a prophet, my friends, is a person who receives a word from God. And he's under a solemn responsibility then, a solemn obligation, to deliver that word to the people. To whoever, it might be he has to bring a message to a certain person. It might be he has a message to bring to a certain people, to a certain group of people, or to a whole nation of people. But whatever it is, a prophet has that solemn responsibility to take the word that God gave him, not to change it, not to alter it in the least, but to deliver it unchanged, unvarnished, to the people to whom God sent it. And now this is Micah. Micah is such a prophet, and he received... Words from God, which he then had the responsibility to deliver to the people. Now, when we come to the book of Micah, however, and many people have noticed this, is that the book of Micah seems very, uh, almost disjointed. It seems like you're reading a prophet and suddenly there's an abrupt uh, shift, an abrupt change with no transition. It doesn't seem to be one uh, continued uh, narrative or one continued uh, uh, prophecy. And, of course, many of uh, the scholars who do not acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God immediately assume from this that uh, the book of Micah was not really written by Micah, right? That it's just a hodgepodge of stuff that people put together for various reasons or whatever reasons and, uh, and from various time places and that the fact that the book is called Micah and it says at the beginning, the word of the Lord which came to Micah in Micah 1 verse 1, <clears throat> of course, they don't, they don't regard that as true. But as evangelicals, right, who hold to the truth of God's word, we believe that Micah is uh, what it says it is, that it is the word of God. Now, all that being true, my friends, we can say that the book of Micah is not one continued prophecy. For instance, you might think of the book of Jonah, right? When you read the book of Jonah, you get a connected discourse from beginning to end, right? This happens to Jonah, and then this, and then Jonah speaks this word. He goes to Assyria, right? And it follows one after the other. But the book of Micah is a collection of all the prophecies that God gave to him. You know how on your shelves at home you might have a a multi-volume set of books, right? And it might say, the collected works of John Owen, right? Or the collected writings of uh, Abraham Kuyper or whoever, right? It might be, right? And and then you expect to find in that uh, all the different books and writings and essays that this man uh, may have written in his life. And if it's a comprehensive collection, you expect to find everything in there, right? Now, that's kind of what you have when you have the book of Micah. You have all his prophecies collected into a book. So it's important that when we read the book of Micah, we don't expect to read that all these uh, prophecies are one prophecy. By the way, there are other prophets like that. The book of Isaiah is very much like that. Uh, The collected prophecies of Isaiah. And that's why when we read this, we find that sometimes... Uh, there doesn't appear to be any transition between one section and another. Take, the, take your Bible and look with me at, at the prophet Micah. And let me just 
show you this. So in, in Micah 1, Micah 1 and verse 1, this is again on page 924, in Micah chapter 1, you read about the descent of Jehovah, of God, upon his people. And it's not a happy descent, is it? We are celebrating the descent of Christ to earth in this season. But what a very different advent this is in, in chapter 1. In Micah 1, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Well, this is a very negative thing, isn't it? This is God coming down in judgment upon his people. He's going to tread them down, is the picture that's given us here. And we read uh, the terror of this, right, in verse 4. In Micah 1 and verse 4, the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. And then in verse 5 of Micah 1, again still in Micah 1, and verse 5 we're given the reason for this. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now we learn from verse 5 now that the prophecy of Micah was written not just to the two tribes in the south, but it was written also to the ten tribes in the north, right? In verse 5, all this is for the rebellion of Jacob, that's the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and for the sins of the house of Israel, those are the ten tribes. Furthermore, we can conclude from verse 5, what is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Samaria, of course, the capital city of the ten tribes in the north, Jerusalem, the capital of the two tribes in the south. From this we can conclude, dear congregation, that the city of Samaria is still standing. That the ten tribes are still in their land. They've not yet been swamped by the Assyrians as they were soon to be. Very soon to be, probably. Notice verse 6. You can see that this is right around the corner. Verse 6, For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. So these opening verses of Micah give us a clue, right, that Micah is preaching both to Judah and to the ten tribes of Israel, that Samaria is still standing, and of course Jerusalem is standing, uh, but Samaria is doomed, right, verse 6, for I will make Samaria a heap of ruins. Well, this is one prophecy that God gave to Micah, which Micah then delivered to the people of both of Judah and of Israel. But in in chapter 2, we come to a different prophecy. We come to a different prophecy. Woe to those, says Micah, who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. Right? And this is specifically a a prophecy against those who are oppressors. They're plotting and scheming evil plans. And if you read further there, I'm not going to read any more of that, but you can read how they oppress the poor. They steal and they they, they commit fraud against people. Then beginning in verse 6, we have a prophecy against the lying Prophets, now again, a different prophecy. Still by Micah, Micah 2 and verse 6, do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. So this is a a prophecy to the prophets who are false prophets, lying prophets. And you can read that for the rest of that chapter. Then in chapter 3, there's a prophecy against rulers. You can see the subheading there over chapter 3, rulers denounced. I'm sorry, well, I'm not quite done with chapter 2 yet. 
Go back to chapter 2 and, and look at the, verse 12. So in, cha- in the first part of chapter 2, we had a prophecy against the oppressors. And in the second half of chapter 2, against the lying prophets. But then notice verse 12. And, and again, you see how, how suddenly the prophet jumps to a completely different prophecy. He says, I will assuredly assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. Do you hear this, congregation? A very, a very a wonderful prophecy. Micah went from bringing, calling down judgment upon oppressors, judgment upon the lying prophets, and suddenly he switches to this beautiful prophecy that has been such a comfort for the people of God throughout all ages, especially in verse 13 when it talks about the breaker going up before them. What a beautiful promise that is. Well, again, the way to understand that, my friends, is that verses 12 and 13 are a a unique prophecy on their own. Because many people have stumbled, right? You're reading chapter 2, and all of a sudden you just, boom, you just come to this prophecy that now speaks of blessing and, and glory for the people of God and God gathering them as sheep into a fold. Well, then we come to chapter 3, where, again, the the prophet proceeds to announce judgment on rulers, wicked rulers, of course. And then in chapter 4. And chapter 4 and chapter 5 are the prophecy that we are in today. And you can see just from the subheadings, again, over chapter 4, peaceful latter days. Again, chapter 4 is a beautiful promise of God's restoring grace, his saving grace on his people He's going to protect them, and he's going to preserve them. This is the glory of God's kingdom. Well, my friends, if you go to the very end of chapter 4, if you go to the end of chapter 4, you can see uh, that God says, Arise, and I'm in chapter 13 now, so Micah 4 and verse 13, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. By the way, that, that language, daughter of Zion, is, is, a, is a specifically to show the weakness, the vulnerability of, this, of the people of Israel. Daughter of Zion, just like a, like a daughter, okay? Not, not somebody strong and intimidating, somebody weak. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. So God promises to strengthen the daughter of Zion, to make her like a, like a horse with hooves of iron that will pulverize people. You see that the contrast there, right, between daughter of Zion, but what God will make the daughter of Zion, a ferocious uh, war horse that will trample down people. And then we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1. And it continues this idea of Israel... Uh, gaining the victory over its enemies. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. And there you see that same language, daughter of troops. That sounds very strange, doesn't it? Daughter of troops, but it's, again, the daughter of Zion, the same person, but represented as as like a little girl. Weak and vulnerable. Daughter of troops, they have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this is the insult that I have on the outline there. In verse 1, This insult is, in the first place, what we have. In Micah 5, with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So the judge, the man of great prestige and influence, smack right across the cheek. Again, in our day, that would be an insult. But certainly in their day, 
a terrible insult to be struck across the cheek. Notice the man's not killed. He's not struck dead. But he's given a terrible insult. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the, on the cheek. So the enemies of Israel, it seems, have uh, some dominance here, don't they? It seems that they're gaining the victory. They're able to walk up to Israel and, and smack him on the cheek and to openly insult him to his face. But we see the contrast, right? And you see that conjunction in two, but, right? There's now a contrast. There's a shift in, the, in, the, in this story here. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from old, from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, my friends, here we have this ruler. We had in the first place an insult, but now God raises up from Bethlehem. And my friends, I, I, I hope that you can see the, 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 this, this train of thought, right? We first were introduced to Israel as a daughter of Zion. Little girl Zion, you might say. And then daughter of troops. This weak child. And then Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Again, uh, you know, what possible good, what, what possible strength could come from Bethlehem? This little backwater of a town. This little ghetto. Not even... It doesn't even register on the rolls of, of villages. It's such a tiny little town. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Hardly even to be called a family, a clan of Judah. But now God says, from you, from Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And notice what we're told about this ruler, that his goings forth are from long ago. You look back to see how old he is, and you can't find his beginning. That's basically the language here. You look back, no matter how far back you go, you can't find out where he got started. And then a, just a slight adjustment on, on the very last clause of verse 2. It says, from the days of eternity. I would translate that as to the days of eternity. He, you look back, you can't see his beginning. You look forward, and you can't see his end. From, from history back, from history forward. He doesn't seem to have a beginning. He doesn't seem to have an ending. This is that ruler that is coming out of Bethlehem. His goings forth are from long ago to the days of eternity. And then in verse 3, Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. So therefore he, now that is God the Father, God the Father, he will give them up. God will give them up. God will give Israel over into the hands of its enemies. The enemies will conquer them. They will be oppressed under the heel of of their enemies. When she who is in labor, so now you see this woman in Bethlehem, and she bears a child. Then the remainder of his brethren, so the, the, the Jewish people who have been scattered, and especially after the conquest of the ten tribes in the north, talking about those ten tribes after they've been scattered, and they've hauled off and taken away into exile, after that child is born, they will return. The remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And, and the idea of return is not just return, but they'll return repenting. They'll be sorry for what they've done. They'll be sorry for their covenant unfaithfulness. And they'll come back to this child. 
And he, now the son, that ruler out of Bethlehem, he will arise and shepherd his flock. So in the third place, in verse 3, we had the enemy, right, who will have a a limited success. In verse 4, now we have the shepherd. And he will arise, that ruler out of Bethlehem, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And my friends, don't skip over those words. We, We see this repeatedly in this prophecy. We saw daughter of Zion. We see daughter of troops. We see this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. And now we see this shepherd. Does he shepherd in his own strength? No. In the strength of the Lord, in the strength of Yahweh or Jehovah, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, his strength is all from God. And they will remain, that is the people of Israel, God's people will remain. They'll settle down. They'll dwell there. Because at that time, he will be great. God will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one, or this ruler from Bethlehem, will be our peace. Verse 5, that's the next one on the outline. Peace. This one, that ruler out of Bethlehem, will be our peace. In other words, he will establish peace for God's people. And peace there, my friends, is a very full sense of not just peace, but prosperity. Thriving. And he continues. This one will be our peace when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And verse 6, we have a conquest. Conquest. They will shepherd, so the ruler at the head of these seven shepherds and eight leaders of men, they, that band of men, will shepherd who? What does it say there? They will shepherd the land of Assyria. The Israelites will conquer the land of Assyria. They will bring Assyria under its under their heel. The land of Nimrod at its entrances, and the word entrances there is put for their the, the entrances of their gates of their cities, the gates of their fortresses and their citadels. Right? In verse 5, the Assyrian tramples on our citadels. But in verse 6, Israel, this, this ruler from Bethlehem with seven shepherds and eight leaders, will go to Assyria, and he'll crush Assyria under his sword and attack their entrances, their citadels, their fortresses. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then, verse 7, the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation. Now, friends, we hasten to how to understand this prophecy. Now, you know there are many Christians today, good, solid Christians, Right, who insist on what they say is a literal interpretation of prophecy. That we must interpret these prophecies literally. Well, you run into a lot of difficulties, don't you? How can you interpret this prophecy literally? And we're not entirely opposed to interpreting prophecy literally. But we also recognize in our Reformed, and then the big word here is hermeneutics, right? Our, the, the way we interpret the Scripture, right? And in the Reformed understanding, many of these prophets prophesied and, and used concepts, ideas, peoples that were familiar to them to communicate truths that were much more timeless. In, in other words, my friends, God, the author, the ultimate author of Scripture, spoke more than what the prophet himself even knew he was saying. 
Now, the literal interpreters of Scripture, again, in most Bible churches, you'd find people like this, right, and, uh, who, who insist on interpreting this literally, uh, would say, no, th- th- this has to be interpreted literally. And when, when the Bible says that Israel is going to conquer Assyria, that means that, that that really must happen. And when it says that the ten tribes are going to return to the people of God, th- 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 we, we look for that fulfillment. If you have your Bible open and you jump back to chapter 4, if you look in chapter 4, where it says in verses 5, and again, by the way, chapter 4 and chapter 5 are very closely linked. They're both prophecies of a glorious future for Israel. But in chapter 4 and verse 5, you'll notice it says, Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now notice again that time stamp there, right? The time uh, forever and ever. Well, the, the, the literal, the people who would have us understand this prophecy with strict literalness are forced then to say that this prophecy must apply to the time of the millennium. That 1,000 year reign before the coming of Christ the second time unto salvation. Well, you know, that Christ comes first, he sets up his kingdom, and then there's that 1,000 year reign, then he comes again. But how is that consistent with what we read in verse 5? Because it says, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever, not for 1,000 years. And again, my friends, I I don't mean to uh, belittle these people, certainly not. Many of these are excellent exegetes of Scripture. I learn a lot from them. But I put a quote from one of them here in his explanation of Micah 4 and verse 5. And notice what he says there. I, I can't even remember who this was, actually. But uh, it says, and the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion. Again, he's explaining Micah 4 and verse 5. And the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion, Jerusalem, throughout the millennium and forever. It has to strike you as a bit uh, of an odd interpretation, no? Because the, the Bible says nothing about a millennium here. And yet this interpreter insists on saying that he will rule over them throughout the millennium and forever. That seems a bit... Uh, Special pleading, if I may say. Why, why, would you, why would you even introduce the concept of a millennium? It says nothing about a millennium here. In fact, if you in, in Micah chapter 4 and verse 7, you go on. Uh, in Micah 4 and verse 7, it says, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. It says it again, both in verse 5 and in verse 7. So I reject any idea that there's, uh, that there's some kind of millennium in consideration here. I, I don't accept that. I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't say anything about a millennium. And there's no reason to believe that there is such a thing as a, as a millennium. So we understand this passage, my friends, to be Micah speaking about uh, a glorious future for the people of God. And that there's much more intended in these words that he gives than he himself knew. And we, reading it through New Testament eyes, can understand that when the prophet prophesies that the remainder of his brethren will return, as he said in verse 3, that even though literally that would refer to the ten tribes who were scattered, and any, any Israelite who was scattered and dispersed, that they will return to God in repentance and join themselves to the people of God again, we read that as a reference to the people of God generally. Not to the ten tribes literally. To the best of our knowledge, there is nothing in history that corresponds to that. 
To the best of our knowledge, the ten tribes never returned to God and to the people of God in repentance and faith. And later on in the New Testament, especially in the words of Jesus, Jesus says, I have a people that I'm going to call that are not my people. In other words, Gentile people. And they will come and they will repent and they will join themselves to the people of God. And when in verse uh, in verse 6, it talks about Israel conquering the land of Assyria with the sword. How are we to understand that literally? The, the, the children of Israel never conquered the land of Assyria. I don't know how you can understand that in, in a literal way. That must be a figurative representation that Israel, in the latter days, is going to conquer her enemies and dwell in safety and that this ruler out of Bethlehem will protect and lead and guide his people in such a way that their enemies will be dispersed and the people of God will live in peace and safety. Well, my friends, I know that's a, maybe a bit more technical than you are, you're hoping for, but it, it is an important thing when we read the prophets of how we are to understand them. And there is this disagreement, this, uh, a bit of a dispute of how we're to understand these prophecies, whether we're to interpret them with strict literalness or are we to inter- interpret them as a more symbolic, more figurative representation of what is coming in the future. Well, my friends, I bring this sermon to a close then by considering with you these three applications as you have them there. In the first place, God's faithfulness. My friends, what do we mean when we talk about God's faithfulness? When we talk about God's faithfulness, when we talk about faithfulness of anyone, we are talking about their their commitment to some previously made or previously arranged agreement or a previously made promise of some kind. And now that's what we see, my friends, when we come to Bethlehem this morning. Because God made this promise in Micah 5 and verse 2 that out of this insignificant little village would rise a ruler who would shepherd his people Israel and who would put aside all their enemies. And I ask you this morning, my friends, in this season of Advent, has God been faithful to that promise? Isn't that what we celebrate today? Isn't that what we rejoice in in this time of year? Isn't that why the children are going to gather here after the service and sing these songs? God is faithful, my friends, to what he promised his people Israel. And a ruler did come out of Bethlehem. And we read that in Matthew 2. Right, Because as Matthew reflects on the birth of Jesus, his mind is immediately led to this prophecy from Micah. And he says in Matthew 2, in Matthew 2, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, this is in verse 6, Matthew 2 and verse 6, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, Matthew immediately is led to think of that prophecy and to reflect on God's faithfulness to his word. Now, my friends, the truth of it is is that we also are in that, in that same position as the shepherds shepherding their flock, as the people of Israel. Remember what the Bible said about Simeon. Oh, I put that there in the, in, from Luke 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. And what was he doing? Looking for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was a waiting, expecting man. He was looking for something. 
And the basis of his expectation, my friends, was the faithfulness of God to his promises. And now this Advent season, my friends, we can learn this lesson when we come to Bethlehem. When we come to Bethlehem this morning, that Christ has also promised us that he will come again. That he will come again, not this time for salvation, but for judgment and for bringing his people into their home, into their eternal home. And so it's not so much different, my friends, the position of Simeon and our position this morning. And at the basis of it, and I want you to see that this morning, my friends, is that rock that we stand on, the faithfulness of God to his commitments, that God never lets a single one of his promises fall to the ground. And so we can take hold of that this morning by faith. We can reach forth with our empty hand of faith And we can take hold of that promise that God made to his people Israel of old and that he makes to the people, his people also in 2022. What a beautiful thing in Bethlehem this morning, my friends. I hope you have eyes to see it and I hope you have faith to take hold of it and to rest in that beautiful promise. Do you look forward to the coming of Christ again? That's kind of a strange thing for, for we people who live in such prosperity and so much wealth. And we have so much of this world's goods. And maybe we don't look forward so much to the second coming of Christ. We're not like Simeon looking for the consolation of Israel. Perhaps our hearts are too set upon the things of this world, my friends. Is that also with you this morning? Well, let's come to Bethlehem and let's see the faithfulness of God to his promise And let's worship him with Simeon of old and with all God's people. In the second place, my friends, great things from insignificance. And here we see God's normal way. Daughter of Zion. Daughter of troops, he said. And then also out of Bethlehem. Why didn't God raise up a a ruler out of Jerusalem? The great city, Jerusalem. No, God turns to this insignificant village. And if you would, my friends, in 1 Corinthians 1... Paul explains this to us. And if you would turn there with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul gives us this is God's normal method of working. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And verse 29 gives us the reason. So that no man may boast before God. So that no man may boast before God. The prophet Isaiah said, my glory, speaking for God, my glory I will not give to another. You see, my friends, this is God's normal way of working. That he works through insignificant, weak means to accomplish his will in the world. He takes the small, the weak, 
and he raises them up. He takes that little village of Bethlehem, and out of that village he raises up a ruler. And that ruler he empowers and strengthens with his own power to do his work. And so this is the second thing we learn, my friends, in Bethlehem this morning. We learn that God uses the insignificant. He uses the small, the weak, the poor. What service do you offer up to God, my friends? Do you sometimes think, as I do, that what a pitiful trifle this is that I'm doing? This little act of service, whether it's at work or at your school, with your neighbor, whatever it may be, a little act of service that you perform in the name of God. God's given you this opportunity, and you seized it, and you're doing it. And yet as you turn and you reflect, what possible good could it do that I gave that man a cup of cold water to use Jesus' example? Just a cup of cold water. You know, I, I'll admit to you, I was riding down the highway the other day, and I looked up at the billboard, and it said that the lottery had now reached $400 million. And I will confess to you that in my mind, the thought came to me, Lord, what good I could do in your kingdom with $400 million. And then I thought about this text. God doesn't work that way, does he? God doesn't work by giving me $400 million to work for his kingdom. God asks me to take the opportunities that I have and to use those to let God multiply it for his glory so that it's not Chris Engelsma doing the work of the Lord. And Chris Engelsma did that for this man. And he did that for this church. No, my glory I will not give to another, says God. And so God raises up the poor, the insignificant, you, my friend. And he asks you to bloom where you've been planted, to put in your shovel wherever you're standing and to do the work of God in his name. And God adds his blessing on that. My friends, that must be encouraging to us, right? As we, as we seek to serve the Lord with what little we've been given, God can take five loaves and two fishes and multiply them to the feeding of 5,000 people. That's what he'll do with your little act of service. Even children, even our young people, the little things, the cup of cold water given in God's name will not lose its reward. That's the second thing we learn in the town of Bethlehem today. My third thing, my dear friends, is the enemies. Now, my friends, last week, we sat at the table with God's people, and we heard that God gives us a place at his table. And God does not give the enemies a place there. That God arranges and he sets that table in the face of those enemies. Those enemies have to be silent. They have no place at that table. God does not anoint their head with oil. God does not fill their cup to overflowing. And we participated in the Lord's Supper together, rejoicing in the place that he gives us at his table. My friends, we have the same message given us this morning, but a different picture. A different picture. We see that in Micah chapter 5, and where it speaks of how God... Of this one will be our peace. This one will be our peace. In verse 5, this one 
will be our peace when the Assyrian invades our land. In the same way, my friends, the enemies can come in, the enemies of our soul, the spiritual enemies that torture us and oppress us. And what a beautiful thing when we look at Bethlehem this morning, my friends, and when we see that ruler rising up as the shepherd of God's people, strengthened with the strength of God himself, and he puts those enemies away. My friends, last week God set a table in the face of those enemies. But this week the text goes even farther. That the ruler from Bethlehem, our champion, will even conquer those enemies. What did it say in verse 6? They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. My friends, that teaches us this morning that you'll live to see your enemy run through with a sword. Not just that you sit at a table in the presence of them, that's wonderful enough. But the passage this morning teaches us that the citadels, the fortresses of the enemies of God's people will be completely destroyed. They will be shepherded, not with a staff, not with a rod, but with a sword. They will be struck down and destroyed. When I was thinking on this, my friends, I thought about in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the great book of God's victory over his enemies. And so we would expect to find this in Revelation. But in Revelation 12 and verse 10, we read, Now, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren. You know that one, my friends? In your own soul's experience, the accuser of the brethren, the one who lies to you, the one who is your enemy, the one who speaks terror to you. That one has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. My friends, in Advent this, this, this season, we celebrate the beginning of his destruction, the beginning of the destruction of Satan. And we look forward in hope to that day when he will be forever destroyed and silenced and cast into hell forever and forever. Let's rejoice then this morning, my friends, in the town of Bethlehem and learn these lessons to God's praise. Shall we pray? Lord, we come before you at the close of this service. Truly, Lord, it has been good to come to the town of Bethlehem this morning and to see the glorious truth that a ruler will come from this city who will destroy all our enemies, cast them into hell forever and forever. Lord, we deserved to go to hell. But the gospel teaches us, Lord, that because of this ruler and all what he has accomplished on our behalf, that we can go to heaven, that we can be taken to a new city, a new Jerusalem, and we can celebrate our peace, the peace that this ruler from Bethlehem establishes for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, grant that we might look in faith to him this morning, that we might find in him all that we need for soul and body, in life and in death. Lord, remember each one Lord, you know the burdens they carry. And I pray that this Christ child, this ruler from Bethlehem, would speak to them this morning and would show them that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our ruler. Amen. Let's take then and uh, sing from number 11 in the Psalter hymnal. Let's sing the uh, let's sing the first three verses, verses one, two, and three. Jehovah my God, on thy help I depend. From all that pursue me, O save and defend, lest they like a lion should rend me at will, while no one is near me, they're raging to still. We'll sing verses one, two, and three of number eleven in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.